0: On this episode, Guidebooks, Hiking in Converse All-Stars, and Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. Shut up, it's a real thing. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick.
1: Hey, welcome to the Almost There Adventure podcast. And in this week's episode, we're talking with Scott Turner, hiker, author, uh, and therapist. Um, since 2012, he has hiked an average of 1,000 miles of per year. So that's kind of a cool thing. Uh, but I think how I know him as a... Initially, he was co-author of the latest revision and update to Jerry Shad's Hiking Guide, A Foot and a Field: San Diego County. And since then, he's authored three additional hiking guides for Mountaineers' books, Hike the Park series. He's done one for Joshua Tree, uh, one on Zion and Bryce National Park, and one in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. And so, Scott, welcome to the podcast.
2: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, it's great to great to have you on and um you know, great to have a conversation with somebody who has such a love for the outdoors. Um I thought I'd maybe start things off with just a quick question, you know. So, how did you what got you started in hiking? And was it a person, was it an event, was it something that inspired you? How did you get going with that? And when?
2: Um serious hiking started for me in 2012. I'd kind of always done it um, without like you know like <laughs> not really knowing what I was doing like going out in converse all-stars and jeans and not bringing enough water or, or wearing any sun you were that like, newbie that we see I would, we yeah, yeah yeah for sure no I was totally I was totally that guy and I got more into it in 2011 because we had that really killer winter I don't know if you guys recall that like the killer winter where like there's just a huge snowpack and I went to the Sierras a couple times and it was You know, waterfalls, creeks flowing, everything was just green and lush and beautiful. And it was like, I don't know, my first, my first uh, time doing a really potent drug and that sort of launched it. But what got me into it seriously was I moved to San Diego to start, uh, because I was dating my wife at the time. I was living in Los Angeles and she was living in San Diego. And I moved to San Diego so that we could stop spending too, too much time on the 405. And When I moved down there, they gave me a copy of like two people gave me like, they were like, like totally separate from each other, gave me copies of the fourth edition of a foot in a field, San Diego County. And when I got down there, I knew it was going to take me a little while to make friends. Um, And I knew that if it was just my wife as my only, like (laughs) my only outlet for anything, it was probably going to stress her out. So I got into hiking and I set myself this goal for trying to hike a thousand miles in a year. And I was using a foot in a field. San Diego County is the primary source of inspiration, um, and I, I hit a thousand miles by September. I got into it so much, so it, 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 I got hooked. I guess. Right, and what year was that again? It was 2012.
1: Yeah. Okay, awesome. Uh,
0: I was gonna say I do definitely remember that winter of, of 2011 because that was the year I hiked the John Muir Trail. So <laughs> I remember being uh, breaking through, you know, 13,000 foot passes and like. Very deep snow in yeah. August. So, yeah, that, that, that year I definitely recall the, uh, <laughs> the, the crazy winter.
2: Yeah, I think you guys were up there right around the same time as I was up in the Cottonwood Lakes Basin. Yeah. And I remember the big snow fields going down Cottonwood Pass, and I remember watching the movie and seeing you guys glissading down the, the passes and just yeah. like, oh, man, that's such a good year.
0: That was good. The climbing up the other side of the pass that we weren't, you know, because you can't, unfortunately, you can't glissade up. I wish you could glissade up, but you can't. So (laughs) it was climbing up through that stuff. At at times it was a little rough and a little hairy, but, but yeah, it definitely was some payoff and that you did get to do some uh, sliding on the way down.
2: (laughs) For Sure. For sure. But I bet most, so most of the passes you're going up the North face of it. And those are the ones that are holding the snow. Yeah. yeah, And then a lot of the, the pass, the South facing side of the pass is probably all clear.
0: Yeah, there was definitely more snow going up than there was to slide on the way down, too. So it was small stretches of payoff for for long miles of uh, of trudging. But, you know, again, I, and I've said this many times, it made it so much more epic to, to do it in those conditions versus, you know what I mean? I mean, it was that much more challenging. It was that much more beautiful, I think, in a way. So there was something special about doing it. I mean, it's always special, but I do feel there was there is something a little bit more special and a little different about doing it in a snow year. So let's hope we get a couple more snow years because we need the water here as well. Because there's obviously a bunch of drought years after that, which obviously California is now... On fire, <laughs> kind of as a result of those drought years, unfortunately. So yeah,
1: yeah, bad news, bad news. So a foot in a field was sort of your guide to doing these that first 1,000 miles in a year kind of goal, and that's a book that um, actually my grandparents they, they used to when they were alive they lived down in San Diego County, and they I have their old copy of that book with all their little dog-eared corners and their footnotes in the margins and. Um, so it's pretty cool. Do you know, do you recall when the first edition of that book came out? Yeah, it was
2: 1986, 1986. Okay. In fact, like he goes back all the way into the seventies. There's this like really quaint old, uh, thing that adventure 16 put out. Uh, It's just this little pamphlet and it was by a guy named Skip Ruland and Jerry Shad was one of the contributing authors to it. So like that was kind of like the seed of hiking literature on local trails.
0: Wow. Let's pour, pour some out for uh, Adventure 16. Yeah. Um, those of you who aren't from Southern California wouldn't know that that was sort of like the um, the local throughout Southern California and San Diego, Orange County, and Los Angeles, like outdoor store, sort of the competitor to REI. And unfortunately, uh, at the end of last year, they they, uh, they went out of business. And I mean, really love that place, you know, kind of sad to see it go. But sorry, I just had to throw that out there, pour some out, you know, pour half a, a beer out.
3: So, Scott, how do you go from just- – you know, avid hiker and, like, really being into hiking to taking on, you know, updating the book and, like, actually becoming, like, sort of, like, a hiking author.
2: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the plan. I, I kind of slid into it and it just sort of landed on my lap. So, like, the first part of it is that I have a degree in English and I learned how to write and so I had that skill and it, it's, like, funny, I'm a therapist and I had the English degree thinking I was never going to make any use of it. Um, I also spent a lot of time studying photography when I was in college, too, um, as a way to avoid taking the real classes, of course. And so I had this like weird skill set that I didn't think was ever gonna do me any good. And then I discovered hiking. And I, I should back up because, like, part of what got me into hiking too before I discovered A Foot in a Field was uh, Modern Hiker. So I was reading Modern Hiker um, like really, really early on, like around 2010, 2011. And, you know, came across some of the local LA hikes that became some of my favorites, like Sandstone Peak and Santa Anita Canyon. And so, you know, looking at Modern Hiker, after I got really into hiking and had like a little blog that just like this quiet little blog that not very many people read, um, I actually pitched Casey on, that's Casey Schreiner, for those of you who don't know him, but um, I I pitched Casey on whether he'd like to have some San Diego content. And he was open to the idea. And then he let me do it. And I, (laughs) with like the typical zeal, like the same kind of zeal that got me hiking like a thousand miles so quickly, I wrote as much as I possibly could for him because it was so enjoyable for me. And then by the time I pitched Wilderness Press on revising the book, I had already written a good 50 or 60 write-ups for Modern Hiker. So that was kind of my way of getting the experience. And then I did. I had no idea they would take me up on writing, on doing A Foot in a Field. Um, I didn't know the whole backstory on like what was going on with the book. And I just, you know, I just kind of cold called them out of nowhere saying, hey, I'd like to do it like this. And, you know, I, I can start right now. I've already kind of hiked about 50% of the book. And so they they took me up on it. It was it was all kind of accidental, sort of in the right place at the right time sort of thing. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. Hey, we, we in fact, we have uh,
1: Casey Schreiner, the founder of Modern Hiker. We appeared in episode 14 of our podcast. So if you want to learn more about Casey, go back into the archive and check that one out that he talks a little bit about uh, Modern Hiker and uh, his books, including the new one he has on Griffith Park, which is pretty awesome. So you got started doing this uh, Jerry Shad book. Now J- Jerry passed away some time ago. So they had this book, and they, ne- they were looking for somebody to who could do an update. How out of date was it? And you know what kind of changes did you implement? Were there new trails that were added? Some trails that disappeared. What did it look like that update?
2: Yeah. So all all of that. Um, you know, uh, Jason earlier mentioned that like we had that great winter of 2011 and then subsequent drought years. So I was hiking everything during the drought years. So one of the biggest things that I was, I found myself updating is that there'd be some passage about, Oh, look for reliable water source at mile five up this Canyon. And you know, I get there and there's no water to be found. So a lot of it, and you know, there, there'd been some pretty major fires between 2007, which is when the fourth edition came out. And when I started working on it, so uh, San Diego had the Witch Creek fire, which merged with the Pumacha fire, which ended up burning over 200,000 acres. And so there is a lot of fire damage to account for. And then there was a lot of fire recovery to account for from the 2003 Cedar fire. So much of the, much of the changes were environmental. Um, I ended up taking out, I believe it was... 18 hikes for one reason or another, mostly fire damage, but a couple because the parks um, weren't really keen on me keeping them in there because too many people were getting themselves into trouble on those routes. And um, I added 50 new hikes to the book. And, you know, a lot of it was, I tried to keep it as subtle as possible, because I didn't want it to be this jarring experience for people reading the book where it was like, Jerry, 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 oh, hey, it's Scott. And then Jerry, 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 oh, hey, it's Scott again. You know, so I tried to make it as smooth and um, continuous as possible. Um, But much of it was around environmental issues.
0: Just out of curiosity on those on those newer routes, are those like say hikes that had existed that he just chose to not report on? Or are they were they actually like new hikes that were available because of like, say, maybe new, new land easements or new trails that were actually constructed? What, what was kind of the balance or how did the new hikes uh, materialize, you know, worthy of adding them? It was a bit of both. Um, There
2: had been a lot of new open space parcels that had either opened or had new trails established that I included. Uh, There was also a lot of stuff where I just, I kind of wanted to get creative and have some fun with it. Um, like, for example, there's one route on the PCT that goes into Long Canyon, which is um, it's southbound from the Laguna Mountains. Very popular area, but you can't do much backpacking in the Laguna Mountains. So I was looking for a place where I could send people where there was water, where you could backpack, where you could get away from everything. And so that was one example of an existing route that I included. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of both. You know, I tried, I tried to add something with each region to the best of my ability because I wanted to try to keep fleshing it out even more.
3: Do you have a favorite hike in the book or is that like asking to choose your favorite child?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, it's tough. It's a lot of the time it's like, what's my favorite hike for my, like a particular mood or a particular season or a particular, like, uh, I, I don't know, region sometimes. But my favorite experience by far was Rabbit Peak. Um, so just so everybody knows what rabbit peak is for people who aren't familiar with the area. It's in Anza borrego desert state park and it's on the Santa Rosa mountains. Um, it's just, just north of the San Diego County border rabbit peak itself, but it's a 21, 21, 22, I, I forget 22 mile hike. Um, you gain about, what is it like 8,000 feet of elevation. And it's all on this dry, hot desert ridge. And you hike up to the first peak, which is like 14 miles, 5,000 feet round trip, just to get there. You have to schlep all your water. So I had like three gallons worth of water on me. And I got up to the top, set up camp, and I'm just kind of sitting there watching the sunset. And it was one of the nights where they fired off a rocket from, I think it was probably from the ocean or either from the ocean or from Vandenberg Air Force Base and out in Santa Barbara area. And I watched this rocket go across the sky and there's this huge explosion. Um, And it was so just surreal to be miles and miles and miles away from anybody and to see that happen. And then the next morning I wake up because you've got a six and a half mile out and back hike just to get to Rabbit Peak from your first stopping point. And it's a roller coaster. I mean, you gain three and a half thousand feet just in this six and a half mile out and back, just up and down, up and down, relentless. And as I got about halfway through it, the sun came up over the Salton Sea. And it was one of those like incandescent sunrises that turned all the rocks in the mountains into this bright neon red-orange color. And it was it was the one that stood out to me the most because you know, San Diego County's got millions of people in it. And most of the time, people assume that if they want to have a real wilderness experience, they've got to go to the Sierra or they've got to go to Joshua Tree. Um, but to have that experience in that place in a spot that's only about a, was only about an hour and twenty minutes from my house at the time, it was like it it just it showed me the value of having a book like this, which is that here here's this book that's got nearly three hundred hikes in it, and you can have something close to your house. Or you can have this really sublime wilderness experience and it's all there.
0: That hike sounds insane. I mean, was that like? I mean, how did that trail? Who built that trail? How did do you know? Even you know how it got built? Because it sounds like, like who builds that trail for people? Right? No water, super hot on, on the desert. Like who looks at that and goes, "Hey, let's make this trail." Right? How does that? How does that get decided? It sounds kind of torturous. Well,
2: there's there is no trail. Most of the hikes in Anza Borrego Desert State Park do not follow a trail. Like the primary trail system in there is like just a couple of short day hikes in the PCT. Everything else is cross country, and this is this is the same, so it's just follow the ridge. I mean now there's there's sort of a foot trail that's been beaten down by hiker traffic, um, and some of these trails follow old uh, Kuweiya Indian routes um, and there's evidence of Kiweya Indian stuff all over the place out there so there's there's no formal trails in Anza Borrego, so that was a new thing that I had to figure out was how to how to read maps, how to how to go independent of you know GPS and things like that because um so a lot of times reading the directions it was like okay follow the ridge for 500 yards and then cut right at the next saddle and it's like shoot shoot, if i don't figure how to do that out i'm I'm never going to finish this book
1: yeah so tell us a little bit about the hike the park series um you know tell me like first maybe just establish what is the goal of that series of books from from mountaineers books
2: so the goal of that particular series is it's geared towards the more casual park visitors not necessarily the more hardcore folks who you know hike into tahippity valley and king's canyon which jeff i know you've done that one um so a lot of people who come to these parks the vast majority of people who come to these parks are looking to they're they're not going to hike more than like three or four different routes when they visit and when you look at a lot of the existing literature for these books, there are these massive comprehensive guides that even, even me, someone who's, you know, really interested in the deep cuts, I get overwhelmed by them sometimes. And so it's a streamlined pocket sized book that contains like, it's a very curated uh, set of hikes that are the best experiences you can have in these places. So it cuts out a lot of the decision-making they're full color. And um, I feel really good about the photography I was able to include into it. So it's, it's pretty representative of what you can experience and what you can see. And it's designed in such a way to give you what the hiking stuff is, but also to give you like a, a digestible overview, not just on the trails, but on safety, the history, the natural history, um, the geology and then of course like the park rules and regulations. So it's all sort of condensed into this bite-sized package for people. So it's an attempt to really, you know, streamline the information that people need going into the parks.
1: And so you you did uh, I think Joshua Tree was one of the first ones, right?
2: Yeah, that was the first one that came up.
1: So that's the closest national park for you.
2: Yeah, that was it was sort of low-hanging fruit for me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um how did you go about researching like what trails and you know you're saying these are sort of the best experiences how do you decide what are the best experiences because there's a lot of different ways and and some of it's a matter of opinion I'm sure depending on who you are
2: Yeah yeah so some of it starts with just recognizing what are the like the 10 15 most popular trails like you have to put that in like you have to put in Barker Dam you have to put in Hidden Valley you have to put in Ryan Mountain but then from there I spend a, it's a mixture of looking at other guidebooks, looking at Nat Geo maps. Um, I spend a ton of time on CalTopo, just looking at satellite photos and old USGS topo maps, and then I create a list, usually about fifty, for a forty hike book, and I go out and take multiple trips and basically hike all day. And so if I try, like a lot of the stuff I know is going to go in there, like established trail routes that go to like really, you know, just like really like you know, peaks or like a palm grove, for example. Those, those have to go in there because those are the, the most digestible ones for the most people to enjoy. But once you clear that, there's about 10 to 15 different hikes left. And that's where I get to have like the fun, that's like the playtime for me, because then I can, I can create some routes or I can do some cross country desert hiking, which is one of my favorite things to do. Um, and then, you know, I, I try everything out. And if I enjoy it, and if I find like, several things that I think are noteworthy or enjoyable about the experience, then I include it. If I don't enjoy it, like if I can't enjoy it, my attitude, this, and this came out of doing A Foot in the Field, is like to find something great about every hike that I take, um, whether it's just the local trail across the street from me or whether it's Mount Whitney. Um, if I can't enjoy it, it doesn't belong in a book. So like a lot of it is subjective, but I, I do work really hard in trying to put myself in the shoes of someone else who might be hiking it.
3: So on the hikes that you create that are a little bit more off the beaten path, um, you know, cross country and stuff. I haven't read your books yet. Um, What kind of information do you provide the reader so that they can do that safely? Like, do you recommend that they have navigation skills or like what information do you provide so that they can have that same experience in a way that's safe and attainable?
2: For sure. Yeah. No, first and foremost, I recommend in every single in every single spot where it could involve some cross country travel that people know what they're doing. And I'm very explicit about people having actual navigational skills because these days a lot of people will substitute that for having an application on their phone. And don't get me wrong. There's like, there's a lot of places where an application on your phone can be very useful. And I do use those a lot of the times, but they fail. And so I warn people about that, that you cannot rely on it. And if you're going to go do something crazy, like climb Pinto mountain in Joshua Tree, which is just like straight up a ridge, you need to know how to read a map. And then based on that, I write my directions according to the features on the topographic maps. Um, I tend to do that anyways, uh, because that's how Jerry did it. And so I kind of learned how to do it from Jerry. So I write it according to the features on a topo. So if you have a topo, I write it in such a way to help you orient yourself at regular intervals so that can help for people to kind of figure out where they are.
1: So you've got you you have uh fifty hikes that you might do in a park mm-hmm. and you're making multiple trips out there. How many trips does it take for you to complete those 50 hikes and do some of
2: the data collection on those trails? Yeah, it, it depends. I mean, I think I did I think I did Joshua Tree in five trips. And that was easier because Joshua Tree is only about three hours from my house. Um, so that one was easy. For Zion and Bryce Canyon, I actually only did that, I did that in two trips. And I'd spend a week there, and then I spent another five days there. And it was just like 20 miles, 15, 20 miles of hiking every day. Um, so, and that was, that was just because, I mean, it's an eight hour drive to get to Zion. It's nine and a half to get to Bryce Canyon. So in a place like that, I would try to like get as much done in one big trip. Now, Sequoia was kind of a different story, too, because a lot of what I did with Sequoia, I was I was trying to write my very own book for Sequoia just independently. I wanted to see what it would take. And so I had been going to Sequoia like three or four times every year and I had already collected a ton of data. And so I only needed
0: two trips to finish that one off. Uh, now, just out of curiosity, like you said, cause you're dealing with the, the national parks and as someone who's dealt with the national parks is um, do you collaborate with them a lot when you're, you know, you're doing this guidebook? Are they helpful? I mean, what is say if someone wants to do their own guidebook? Don't, don't infer anything from that question, uh, part of the question, but like, like what is the process? Do you need to get say permission, you know, in order, to do these books do you seek it like or can you just go and write a guidebook and and it's fine i honestly i I don't even know because obviously i've dealt with the film side of that but i'm not sure what the guidebook side of that would be
2: yeah no i i always reach out to the national parks i always reach out to their um their their uh, media people because they have special people that are there to collaborate with the media and talk to them and they want to make sure the messaging is all (laughs) <laughs> all clear. Um, I've found just through experience that the, nation- the people in the national parks are extremely busy. They are understaffed. They are underfunded. I get the impression that people are doing multiple jobs. And so it doesn't seem like they've got a ton of time for some guy who's in there writing a book, a hiking guide. Um, so I haven't had a ton of luck getting a lot of input from the higher ups. When I do get responses, it's just like, yeah, go for it. Um, I find that the Rangers are far more helpful because they're the people on the ground. So a lot of times I'll talk with the Rangers, but with that, you have to be a little careful because they don't want to be quoted because they're not the media people. So a lot of times it's more like clarifying rules and getting their take on what's safe and what's not safe. And most of that is actually doubled or repeated on their websites. So their websites are actually one of the best sources of information because that's the official park's stance on everything. And when I send it over to people in the park to say, like, did I get this right? Almost always comes back without any concerns because I've gone off of everything that they say on the website. So. I want as much input from the parks as possible, but there are busy people, so I don't always get as much as I'd like. What are some surprising sources of information that you found beyond
1: the rangers or the parks? Are, are there other you know, like, people that you've run across or
2: you know people in nearby towns, that sort of thing? You know, with, with a lot of it, like one of the better sources of information is just talking to other seasoned hikers. Mm. So like with a foot in a field, for example, um, I, I became acquainted and then friends eventually with a guy named Don Endicott. And Don was a friend of Jerry's. And at first, I think he just wanted to make sure I wasn't going to go screw up his book. But as as time went on, you know, he, he kind of saw that I was taking this very seriously. And he went out with me and he did a bunch of the more difficult hikes in the desert because he likes that sort of thing. And, um, you know, just in talking with him and hearing the stories that he's got to tell, not just about Jerry, but about, you know, all the experiences he's had and he's, he's provided tips cause he's been everywhere. He's provided tips on this park and on Joshua tree and on Yosemite and Sequoia and all these different places and his insight and his knowledge. And then he loans me resources from time to time, like People like that have always been very helpful in doing these things because they're, I've, I learn a lot by doing the books, but there are a lot of people who have been around a lot longer that can, you know, really deepen um, what I bring to the book because they can say, oh, well, you've got all the hikes, but have you considered reading this on the natural history? Or did you know about this book by this author who can tell you about this feature? And so that really just adds more depth to it.
0: They have you r- run into the opposite of that where people complain that, oh man, that was my favorite hike. And now you've ruined it because you wrote a guidebook sending everyone there.
2: <laughs> well, you know, in, in this day and age, I mean, that, that used to happen before all trails was a thing. Um, but <laughs> in this day and age, like the number of people who are reading print hiking guides compared to the number of people who are getting their information from all trails is like, I always point that out when people are like, oh, great, you ruined the thing, which thankfully doesn't happen very often, but it's just like, you know, you can go on all trails and you can find 50 different versions of this. It's not like I'm presenting anything that's never been presented before.
1: Uh, Speaking of all trails, uh, what are your feelings about uh, all trails as a a ref resource for people looking for for trail beta? Hmm. (sighs) We might lose a potential sponsor here, I think.
3: Uh, I don't know.
2: (laughs) You know, I don't want to, like, I definitely don't want to give the impression, like, I don't think it's a good thing. So first and foremost, let me say what I think is good about it, what I like about it. It is a very easy to use and efficient resource, and it is definitely better than not having anything at all. So if someone was to going to go out and try to hike something cold with no information whatsoever versus someone who's going to do the same thing, but they've got all trails on their phone. I think the person who's got all trails on their phone is definitely better. equipped. Now there are problems with it and some of those problems are due to it being a crowdsourced, a crowdsourced platform. So like with SoCal hiker, or with modern hiker, which are also web-based, technically crowdsourced hikers, like out uh, platforms. Although, like, I mean, modern hikers got five published guidebook authors on it, and Jeff, you've been doing this forever. Um, so, with sources like that, you know what you're getting. But with all trails, you don't know who's writing what, and you don't know who's verifying things. And so, they've they've put a lot of illegal hikes out there. Um, their map is open source, so there's a lot of trails that aren't part of systems, and so it causes habitat degradation, and it leads people into places where they can get in trouble. And then I think that the biggest concern is that it will tell you how to hike a trail, but it doesn't tell you much about the weather. It doesn't tell you much about safety. It doesn't tell you much about preparation. And so I really worry about, because there's there's been a huge uptick in rescues in a lot of the local backcountry areas. Like in San Diego, for example, they've pulled Like there've been multiple deaths this year. They've pulled a lot of people out of the waterfalls. And so I think what might happen is someone might have all trails or Instagram and they look and they see this beautiful picture of a waterfall and then they find the basic information to get there. And they go in July at 11 o'clock when it's 110 degrees. So things like that happen quite a bit. And um, you know, like I, I, know that print media and web-based stuff where you have to like look on a laptop or, you know, scroll through a lot of stuff and read a lot of stuff is not as convenient. Um, but I worry that the convenience sometimes makes, uh, creates problems for people with all trails.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that, uh, one of the things that I've seen is that people will say, oh, I've seen somebody who just hiked this trail and it's a trail where the trailhead's closed or something like that. And so you have no, um, nobody vetting the, the entries from the crowd. And so you, you, know, you get all kinds of behavior that some of it's good, some of it's not so good.
0: And one thing I'll add, like, you know, like Modern Hiker, I both, and I see this on the social media, both Jeff, you know, our Jeff, Jeff over here, and, and Casey and whoever's doing Modern Hiker, you know, through their Facebook pages and through their social media, they do a lot of work um, to to keep people informed about which trails are open, which roads are open, if there is some sort of danger, if there is some sort of closure. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into it that way. So, and obviously that is not present or not taking care of on all trails. So yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, and I think it gets compounded because a lot of the people, there's a lot of, there's more and more people getting into hiking. I mean, that was a trend before COVID and it's accelerated after COVID. So more and more people are doing this. And I mean, you remember back, I was talking at the beginning, how I was that guy in Converse and jeans with no water. I mean, There's a lot of people who don't know a lot about the safety and about what to bring and what to carry and the 10 essentials, all those different things. And they're entering hiking with the best of intentions. And I'm excited to know that they want to do it. But the information that they're getting, if it's coming from something like all trails and they're not getting all the other stuff that's in a, you know, that's in a modern hiker or a SoCal hiker write up or it's in a print book. Then I'm worried that they're going to go out there and get and get themselves into trouble because they're not
0: prepared. Also, for, uh, just correct me if I'm wrong, but all All Trails is a paid service as well, is it not? Isn't there like a? I think there's a free version and
1: then there's a, a subscription for some additional functionality, like downloading maps and that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah.
0: Well, you'd hope they'd be downloading the maps. If- well, that's that's another thing.
1: You know, like I see people say, "Oh, I just use Google Maps for my hiking trails." And it's like. I, you know, slap my forehead, I, I can't even imagine doing that. I mean, I guess it's better than nothing. But if you don't, you know, a lot of these places, you have no cell service. So you're not going to have data, you're not going to have the ability to accurately see where you're, you know, get, get map data, you can see where a little blue dot where you are <laughs> from the GPS satellite, but that's not going to help you much. If you don't, you
0: know, yeah. And it might sound like we're being a little bit in nennies, but the problem is, is it feels like every week we're seeing, you know, locally and in San Diego, L.A., the Sierra, you see people that are going missing, people that are being injured, people that are having to be rescued. So this is this is an issue. And, I, and it does seem like it is an issue that has grown over the years as more and more people start to hike, which we all agree is a good thing. We want more and more people to get out and enjoy it, but we just want people to do it more more safely and, and you know, be careful.
1: Yeah, I see a lot of people asking about, like, what app do I need, you know, for navigation? And I think there are great apps. You know, I like to use, personally, Gaia GPS.
2: Yeah, same I, here. I, I'm i a big fan of Gaia. Yeah.
1: Uh, but I always, always, always bring a paper map as well. So whether I, it's a, a Tom Harrison map in Southern California or a Nat Geo map in maybe a National Park area or... Something I've printed off of CalTopo, even that is at least I have you know some reference that goes beyond just the little picture that I see on my smartphone, and uh, you know it gives me some uh, you know ability to see a larger area at a glance and more features
2: and um, and also never runs out of battery. It never it never runs out of battery, but like. One of, one of the other things that I got out of doing a foot in the field because I had to do so much cross-country navigation is that when you're, when you're tuned into a map and you're constantly referencing it and, you know, triangulating your position, doing all the things you're supposed to be doing, um, you are far more in tune with the actual hike and the, the landscape and the experience that you're having than if you just pull out your phone 30 or 40 times. And I mean, I've got, I've got issues with social media and with phones to begin with just because like those like social media, even stuff like All Trails, which is a social media platform, they are designed to keep like to manipulate people psychologically to keep coming back and using them. And so like for me, I'm trying to get away from those things and I'm trying to like have like a really pure, clean experience where I can kind of clear my head out a bit and Just attending to a map and focusing on that just keeps me in the moment, which makes the hike that much better.
0: So you've basically just teed up the transition that we kind of needed to to switch over into what you do as a living. You are a therapist, um, and as a hiker, guidebook writer, and a therapist, why don't we just for a little bit? Do you want to talk about the beneficial effects of nature, how it helps you, how it creates peace of mind? I mean, what has your experience been as both, as someone that works, you know? as a therapist and as a guidebook writer and a hiker. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So,
2: I mean, when, when, uh, I think it was Severia who asked me like what got me into hiking in the first place. But when it was also at a time where I was starting graduate school to, for my master's program for counseling and the it's intense, like the program I did, it was one entire class. So it was like one class per month. So it was like, learn everything you can about child psychology in one month. Then the next one was learn everything you can about psychopharmacology in one month. So it was a lot. And I remember just that first spring break, it was like, I have to do something. And I got like this unexpected windfall and I was like, what am I going to do with this money? I know I'm going to go to Zion. And so I went to Zion and just like stressed out of my mind from taking on this graduate program. And I spent five days there between Bryce and Zion and had these amazing experiences. And when I came back, I just felt like my head was so much clearer. And I didn't understand what that was about until like a lot of the research started to trickle out about the impacts on your body, how it helps the body metabolize stress hormones and how it can help your attention span. Like there's so many different things that are starting to to leak out. But what I found for me was that being in a natural environment where there are no no demands on my time no walls no noises n- just nature um that had such a soothing effect on me it was like a soothing effect that i couldn't find from anything else and you know i, I when i think about it like in like a very primitive way like our species started just in natural environments. And it's only really in the last couple hundred years that we've spent the vast majority of our time living in boxes. And I don't know that our bodies and our brains and you know, all of our physiology knows what to do with that. And so I think when we get a chance to go out into a natural environment, everything starts to feel natural again. And we start to I I feel at home. I know there are a lot of people that are worried about getting eaten by mountain lions, but I feel at home and I feel relaxed. And it's it is as comfortable as anything for me.
1: Um, There was news a couple of years ago about doctors in Scotland prescribing a dose of nature for battling things like high blood pressure. Mm hmm. And, um, you know, do you see any of that like coming over to the states, you know, or is that
3: there's a there's doctors back east who prescribe for kids? It's um, I will look up his name, but go um and play. Like, pardon. Yeah. No, honestly, there's go like, out and play there. Yeah. There are doctors that are prescribing getting outdoors, going to parks. Um, as a prescription.
0: I'm sure as well, it's all come even more compounded now with all the stay at home orders and obviously living in this time of COVID where we're even more cooped up than we were before. You know, I mean, I mean, obviously getting outside and uh, it seems like it's even more important now than it's ever been.
2: For sure. No. so, So from a therapist perspective, we all tend to look at this as a mass trauma that everybody's undergoing with COVID. So any kind of trauma having a chance to relieve the stress that's occurring while the trauma goes on is really important. And, you know, most of our usual outlets are off limits now. And, you know, they, even from the get go, when they did all the stay in place orders, it was all like, well, you can still go outside, you can still go for a walk, you can still do all this stuff. So I think a lot of people saw, well, at least I have that, at least I've got that to turn to. Um, But as far as like, how it's showing up in the medical field, I think, What you're talking about with doctors prescribing outdoor time, I think that's happening, but it's much more on a case-by-case or or clinician-by-clinician basis, and I think it's also much more outlier type stuff, like on the margins, because the current current healthcare system, it's all very evidence-based, and I don't know that there's enough evidence-based stuff yet to get it to the threshold where it's what we call an evidence-based treatment. And one of the other things about the way things tend to work is that there's usually about a 20-year lag time between the time something becomes an approved evidence-based method of treatment and when people start using it in mass. So we're always behind the curve with this. And so like one of the dangers for me, like people have asked me, do you, why don't you just take people on walks and do therapy when you go on walks? Um, which would be amazing. I would love that. I hate sitting on my butt for six, seven hours a day. I mean, that's the one part of therapy I don't enjoy. Um, but you know, you've got privacy issues. You've got issues on whether you're really allowed to do business on public land. There's there's all con- kinds of stuff that go along with that. So there are complications. But I think that the biggest hurdle to it is just that we are. The model for most well-being still is the medical model, which will tend to try to prescribe a medication first. So if you come up to a doctor and say, I've got a problem, more often than not, the doctor is going to say, well, let me put you on Zoloft or Prozac and then you know, come back to me in six weeks and let me know how you're feeling. They won't necessarily say, well, I know maybe you should take a Hiking. Maybe you should try taking a hike three or four times a week and see if that actually eases some of the stress that you're under. So we're still kind of stuck there, but there there are hopeful signs because there are a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff on the margins that's encouraging people to go out there.
0: There's also seemingly like a lot of. If you look at, um, I don't know if you saw it. I did another short film on um, FKTs, people trying to get the FKT on the JMT, and I, and, you know, as so of that, I've noticed known time. Yes, fastest known time. So the people going for the records. But it's interesting and like, and even one of our friends who I think was our, in our second episode, uh, legend, you know, and, and a couple other people have written about how these extreme sports and doing these hikings, people that have struggled with depression. And it seems that there's been a lot of writing on that. There was another piece in Outside I read recently with another athlete whose name escapes me at the moment. We'll, we'll throw it in the show notes.
3: Yeah, and I looked up really quick. It was um, Dr. Robert Zarr and he's back in DC and he has a program called Park Rx America. And so he has like a whole website and it's like, to, it's basically, it's meant for like kids and teenagers sort of, you know, you're stressed, you're anxious, you're all these things. Again, to, kind of to your point, go spend 30 yeah. minutes outside. So yeah, yeah, so he's done some studies and yeah. it would be great if that could be a universal thing, right?
2: Yeah, no, I hope it I hope it becomes more universal. Um, I think there are a lot of challenges that they'll have to figure out, but they, they can figure that out, I'm sure. Because, um, I mean, I, I, and I think one of the problems might be that I mean, I hate to be cynical about it, but you make a lot more money selling pills than you do telling people to go take a walk. So I I don't know if there's as much incentive for them to do the sort of research that's necessary in this country. Um, So like, you know, in, in Japan, they will ship people out of big cities like Tokyo and Osaka and they'll take them out to the national parks, and they have like dedicated therapy programs that are designed to help these people that spend their lives in boxes to go out there and relieve their stress, because it'll help you metabolize your stress hormones. It'll help you lower your blood pressure. I mean, all of these are observable, are observable effects that they've documented. Um, to the to the hiking part of everything, this is. This is a theory. I don't have the evidence to back it up, but I so I started training in a protocol that we use to treat trauma called EMDR. It stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. Um, a lot of its, a lot of the mechanism for healing is what we call bilateral stimulation. And for anyone who knows what EMDR is, like the therapist, it's famous for the therapist moving their fingers back and forth and having people's eyes follow it back and forth, and it replicates something that occurs when people are are dreaming in REM sleep, because our eyes are moving back and forth very rapidly. But when you think about it, the left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, I think that's also a form of bilateral stimulation. And I think when people take a long walk, what might be happening for them is it might be increasing the communication between the left and the right hemisphere of the brain, which that tends to decrease when people are depressed. So if you're increasing the communication between the two hemispheres, it's starting to unlock things and unfreeze stuff that might become a stuck pattern for people. And I I observe this all the time when I go out hiking. I can get really stuck in an emotional pattern and sometimes it's not very good. But if I go hike for a couple of hours, everything loosens up and I feel like I'm just back to being myself.
3: That's a really interesting correlation between the EMDR and that.
2: Yeah. And I want to make it I want to make it really clear. I don't have there's no I'm not aware of any studies on this. It's more just a theory. But um, but I I mean, we do know that it is a form of bilateral stimulation. So it might just be helping people process what's going on faster. Well, I think that
1: all four of us can attest to the personal experience of going out, you know, firstly, just being in nature and what a calming effect that can have. But then secondly, just going on a hike you know, taking the hike and the, you know, the physicality of it, the, whether it's the, you know, something to the right, left, you know, movement or anything, you know, just, just getting out, you know, using your body, moving and being in the outdoors is such a great experience. And it can, it can really adjust my attitude when I'm having a tough day to get out and do that. And it's hard to be, uh, you know, it's hard to be sad or it's hard to be upset or angry if you're in that kind of environment and, you know, you're out on a trail, you know, and you're seeing beautiful things. And so I think we can all vouch for that. Even if there's not that empirical scientific data to back it up, uh, we can all, we can all agree that that's, uh, that's a value.
0: Yeah. One thing I find too, that it helps my peace of mind a lot. Um, you know, at times I work crazy hours. Like I, I, I just, like did a four day stretch where I worked doubles and, you know, working like 20 hours a day for four days in a monitor and like a reasonably stressful situation. Like I need like, you know, thankfully Jeff, Jeff and I and our friend Derek have a, um, and another friend have a trip in a week and a half. Whenever I'm like stressed, I'm like, Oh, you know what? This is awful. (laughs) I'm not enjoying this right now, but you know, Hey, in a week and a half I'm backpacking. And again, I love what I do. And it wasn't, it's no one's fault. It's just, but it is stressful to, you know, a lot of times you're working under big deadlines. You haven't slept much and a lot of things. So it is great to have the notion that, Hey, I'm not in nature now. I'm in a dark little room staring at a monitor but in a week and a half i'm going to be on a mountain so you know it, it's great for that kind of stuff as well
1: yeah to, tie, to kind of echo that jason i um you know even just looking at maps and and photos so like you know thinking about this trip that we're going to do you know looking at the maps and studying that and and kind of visualizing you know what kind of vertical gain we're going to have on day one and you know where we're going to get water and and then looking at different uh, trip reports and looking at the photos, you know, I just feel better. So I'm not even out there yet, but I'm already feeling better just thinking about it.
0: And even right now at this very moment, unfortunately our listeners, won't. St- we don't do video, so they won't see this, but I'm just looking over Severia's shoulder because Severia right is kind of like I'm jealous because she's actually in nature, kind of in nature at least two feet away from nature right now. And, and, and where are you Severia? Why don't we just let everyone know?
3: I am in Victor, Idaho, so the Teton Valley. Um, peaking at the at, at the back of the Grand. I think it's a little too far to see, but it, it's back there. We went for a paddle on the Teton River before this. so it was all it was good.
0: Yeah, so I'm getting some peace of mind just looking over her shoulder in this tiny little Zoom window on my on my computer.
3: Yeah, working remote here is not the worst thing in the world. I can tell you. <laughs> so Scott, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, what is yeah. your favorite guidebook that is not your own? Hmm. <laughs> is there a series, or is there like an author? You know, another author that you kind of like turn to that you like, or, you know, it's not one here. You know. Series.
2: You know I. Um, so, this is there's a bit of bias here because she's, she's also my friend. Um, but I love Shantae Salaber's book on the PCT. I, I mean, like, yeah, of course, we're friends. I, I adore her, but like, I, she did a beautiful job with that book. And I refer to it quite a lot because I mean, I'm not going to section hike the PCT most likely, but a lot of the places I want to go are mentioned and cited in her book. And so I find myself going to that one quite a bit. Um, I mean, I also, I, I mean, I also love the way Casey writes, uh, Kay, that's Casey Schreiner, but before anybody thinks I'm just shilling for modern hiker authors, I'm also, I'm also a fan of David Money Harris, who does a he did all the other A Foot in a Field. So, so when Jerry passed away, he, um, he had people picked out for all the other A Foot in a Fields in the SoCal area. And David was the one who took over Orange County in Los Angeles And, um, he had people picked for San Diego, but it fell through. So David, David is prolific. I mean, he's, he's taken over John Robinson's books. He's taken over a lot of Jerry Shad's books. And so he's, he's quite good. I really enjoy his stuff. And then, um, there's a couple of, there's a series of books on the Hawaiian islands, um, where (laughs) the, the, the guy who, the, the people who write it, they're a little snarky and they're like, like bluntly honest about everything and i find that to be really refreshing cuz if you've like spent a ton of money to go to hawaii and you're like oh i wonder if i could take a snorkel cruise and then you read it and they say like yeah this was a crap snorkel cruise then it's like oh man thank god for saving me on that one so um i the one,
3: is that like the re- is it revealed like the big island revealed or like what's
2: yeah I, I mean they all have slightly different names i'm looking for it it's um andrew dowdy is the guy who writes them there because there's the ultimate Kauai guidebook there's um there's a few other ones that are all similar but they don't all have the same name they all look okay. the same but they're all different it's like different titles which i don't know if that's a mistake but but those are those are a lot of fun yeah
0: i think if you started hiking or backpacking more recently this might not be something you've done but if you've never really been into guidebooks i really kind of urge people to like it's such a pleasurable thing to do, and to be honest, it's so much more pleasurable than, than like, Google... <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, there's just something about having like a guidebook in your hands and flipping through it and reading it. I mean, I, I, you know, I still go back to my old ones that I bought in the nineties, you know, sometimes I'll just to be sure it hasn't burned down or hasn't, whatever I'll do like an, I'll, I'll do multiple sources, but I almost always, if I'm doing a big trip or I'm going somewhere, I try to buy the guidebook. Like I, I bought the guidebook for wonderland before we did that. Obviously I bought multiple ones on the JMT before I did that. And I try to buy one, the local ones. Obviously I've bought in Casey and Shantae's books and, and everything else. Um, oh, we forgot to plug Shantae was all, what episode was she on? She was, Shantae was on episode six. There we go. So, so if you want to hear more about Shantae, who Scott just mentioned in her great writing, she was on episode six.
3: I feel like Scott's our trifecta, like you, we now have like yeah, the, really? modern, the modern hiker trifecta. We've closed the triangle.
1: I love, I love physical guidebooks as well. And you talked about the snarky ones from Hawaii, Scott. Um, I've got this one that uh, called bend overall. So a little tongue in cheek. There's so much you can do with that name. There's so much you can do. And it's great. And it talks about, you know, where you can go skinny dipping and, you know, things like that, that you wouldn't normally get in a more staid
2: guidebook. So, well, that was that was one of the things I mean, I I love the experience I had with Wilderness Press, but writing with Mountaineers, they're, they're very encouraging on having your individual voice shine through. Um, and, you know, I, I remember having that conversation with Shantae because we were doing, I was doing a foot in a field around the same time she was doing her PCT guidebook. And so we we, we doubled up a couple of times and helped each other out on a few trips. And like, I remember like part part of what she was enjoying about it was that she could be herself because she's got a very like, her sense of humor shines through. It's very like vivid and descriptive writing that she does and writing I think for guidebooks to be competitive, because you guys are right, there's like something really wonderful about them and they're not just like a a, an, an, a compendium of the different routes, they're also textbooks on how to hike. Um, but I think in order for them to continue to be relevant and to be competitive, they have to be engaging reads. They have to be something that you don't necessarily want to put down. And like one of the nicest compliments I got about the hike, the hike the Parks book, I think it was Joshua Tree, is that someone actually read it cover to cover and like, that's, I wasn't expecting anyone would read it cover to cover, but I wanted to create a book that was easy to read and that was actually enjoyable and informative.
0: Jeff, I remember like a while back you weren't you, you were talking about having like meetups where people would bring guidebooks and bring maps, right?
1: Yeah. So there was a, there was a group that started in New York City and they would have a monthly, what they called mappy hour. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's the idea is that they would have a big map on the wall and people could pin, you know, sort of like their adventure goals on that. And they could bring, you know, guidebooks and, you know, talk about their trips that they're planning and and all of that. And, and obviously, you know, have a nice craft beer or or something along those lines. And uh, I, I thought that was an awesome idea. I'd love to see that spread a little bit further.
2: Oh, my God, you're describing that. And I'm thinking, like, if if someone invites me out to go to a bar there is, an ab, like, there is an absolute zero chance that I will actually take you up on it. But if you were to invite me out to a place where we're all gonna look at maps and talk about trip planning, <laughs> oh my God. I mean, we need to like, we, I know Jeff, you're up in, in Bend and in Severia, you're out in Idaho right now, but like, like maybe we need to create that in Southern California
0: yeah we need to find a really neat old looking room with old leather chairs you know and like like old paintings of dead people on the wall and some like whiskey decanters you know uh yeah we need that and you know maps (laughs) heavily emphasize the whiskey yeah definitely maybe
2: maybe we just need the whiskey. Yeah, (laughs)
0: Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well as a therapist can i ask you can you fix me and maybe jeff a little bit because because we're you know just just out of curiosity here's
2: here's the classic therapist joke how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb i don't know 10 the light bulb has to want to change first
0: uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doomed, I'm doomed then. I'm broken. I'm forever perpetually broken then, I think.
2: It, it's my day off. I, I I put the therapizing one back in its case, and it's up on the shelf, so I don't think I can help it
0: today. All right. I was trying to use my podcast to get some free therapy, but I guess that's uh, it. Oh, well. Oh, well. We'll have to yeah. take a hike. Yeah.
1: <laughs> hey, Scott, do you have any um, favorite you know tips or tricks for for hiking? You know, you see... I'm sure you've seen. We've all seen a lot of you know, newbies out there and their Converse All-Stars and you know, too, too little water. What would you what advice would you give to people who are looking to get into hiking or maybe to power up or level up their hiking? Well, if you're
2: if you're in SoCal, um, I highly recommend the world the Wilderness Basics course and the Wilderness Training Course. The basics is the one in San Diego. Training is the one in Los Angeles. I recommend those because not only is it a great social experience, but they give you a lot of the nuts and bolts things that you need to know. Um, if you're not going to do that, I encourage everybody to, I mean, there's some, there's some great Facebook groups out there that do provide good information. That's one place you can start, but social media is a decidedly mixed bag. So I, would, I recommend there, there's some, any hiking guidebook book you, you buy is going to have information. It's going to be good information on how to do things safely. So I know I've got a vested interest in this, but go out and buy some hiking guidebooks because they're they're not just lists of hikes that you can take. They're also textbooks.
0: And I think our own Severia, you do teach a few of those courses, Yeah, so do I'm, not? A,
3: I'm one of the group leaders for the Wilderness Travel Course in LA. So yeah, in the it, San Gabriel yeah. group. So I highly, I mean, that's, it's what we were talking about 2011. Like that's how I got started. I took the Wilderness Travel Course in 2011. I was duped into thinking that every winter in Southern California is like that winter and that every winter has (laughs) endless amounts of snow. And I was like, this is the best thing ever. Um, Anyways, but um, yeah, no, I agree with, I mean, education and being informed, it just makes everything more enjoyable because if you know what you're doing out there and it doesn't mean that you have to go out and buy thousands of dollars worth of gear and it doesn't have to be this big expensive thing, but if you have the knowledge, you're not gonna be worried about getting lost. You're not gonna be worried about how much water, you know, if something does go wrong, you're gonna have the skills to make a what could be a big thing a small thing you know so totally agree with you scott that having those skills and seeking them out is super important that's and that yeah. it's also to say there's tons of hikes that you can go on that don't really need experience either you know there's yeah lots of urban hiking and close to home hikes but for the ones that are going to be a little bit more challenging definitely
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 tough because I know a lot of people want like really easy easily digestible quick tips on how to do it. And yeah, I think taking starting small is a good place to to for beginners. Um, you know, sticking to the um, you know, like sticking to the more heavily traveled trails so that you're never really alone and you can find help if you need it and you're within cell reception. Those might be great places, but it's to like really enjoy hiking to its fullest extent. I believe that you need to really learn all the different skills. You need to learn about the 10 essentials. You need to learn about Leave No Trace principles. It really helps to know how to navigate independent from an application. Um, I highly recommend people learn and read about the, the local flora and fauna learn and read about geology, learn and read about the history, both like the recent human history and the ancient human history, because that is present in every single hike you take here in Southern California or anywhere really. And so the reason why I recommend all of that, even though I know it's cumbersome and it takes time and it's work, is that if you take a hike and all you do is like, oh, all trails said go here, I'm bagging on all trails again, but all trails said go here and you do that and you talk and you don't see anything, That's a different experience than if you know, like, oh, okay, so it looks like the California buckwheat is blossoming right now. And I I wonder if there's going to be, oh, look, there's mariposa lilies that are also blossoming right now. And it looks like we're a little late for the sage, but, you know, I still see a couple of blossoms hanging out. So you, you like have this deeper appreciation for all the things that you're seeing. And it's, you know, it's like any kind of relationship, the more, you know, about the other person you're with, the deeper you appreciate them. It's the same with hiking. The more you know about the trails and the habitat, the deeper your appreciation is
0: for. Yeah, that's one one thing that I just learned about from from interviewing uh, Griff, who was two or three episodes ago. I forget, but he talked about the iNaturalist app, and now I have it. And I and I took all, when I my most recent trip I did in Glacier, I took a couple pictures of flowers and things. And when I got back into into reception, I'm like, oh, okay, that's that, that's that. You know, I mean, it, it, it's super cool to have. Um, I've also like several hikes and things. I've actually bought the digital versions of the guide of the um um the uh, what would you call it gosh from the field guide the field guides from for for areas i'm going to and then you have it digitally you know it has pictures of the different wildflowers and and things like that so yeah that's a cool like just easy thing you can do and again if you buy the digital version you're helping pay you know again you're helping the the authors and the people perpetuate it and keep it going so that's a neat way to experience hikes and like an easy tip what's on your schedule for for the rest of the year here scott do you have anything cool coming up
2: um yeah i'm gonna go backpacking up to thousand island lake in a couple of weeks with a couple of friends of mine um i actually just finished my fifth book and after i finished that book which was like it was a lot it was the most work i've had to do on a book since a foot in a field because the hike the park ones are smaller this one i did a book on yosemite and it was like 15 trips to get the to get the damn thing done so (laughs) after all of that i'm i'm just sitting here thinking like man driving 10 minutes to the beach and walking every every Sunday that sounds pretty damn good right now because I'm, I'm a little bit cooked on the eight hour drive thing right now. And um, you know, with COVID going on too, it's, it's, you know, I, I want to stay closer to home because I I know it's more safe than most things to be hiking, but I don't want to take any unnecessary risks. So aside from the thousand Island Lake thing, I think I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay close to home and just enjoy what's here in San Diego.
0: By, by damn damn did you mean Hetch Hetchy?
2: Yeah, 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 Hetch Hetchy. I I mean, I I wish that damn wasn't there too, but yeah, I did I
0: did spend a good chunk of
2: time in Hetch Hetchy and I spent a couple nights out there.
0: When is it the book coming out? When can we expect it? And we're like, I guess what is the focus of the book?
2: I'm <laughs> I'm not really supposed to say much about it. Um the publishers like to be coy about these sorts of things, but it's it's going to be pretty thorough. I mean, it's Yosemite, so like we we decided to go big on it and it's, I am extremely proud of what I did because like when, when you, when you start writing hiking guides, I mean, you never know when the last one's going to be. And you know, part of the reason why I do these things is, is because I'm contractually obligated to keep hiking. And that's, that's great when you're a working adult with a three and a half year old. So, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know when I'm going to do another one. And I kind of felt like, I kind of felt like, man, I really want I really want to knock it out of the park with this book. I'm sorry I can't tell you the specifics, it probably is not gonna be out for a little while though because I just finished the manuscript for it. And these things usually take at least a year, and because this is a bigger one, it might take longer. So I, I'm sorry I can't give you any concrete no. stuff on that, but I'm supposed to be coy. We'll, we'll
0: have you. Uh, we'll have you back uh, when it's ready. You know, to talk about it when it's ready. Yeah, that'd, that'd be, be awesome.
2: fantastic. I've got it's tough. I've got so much to say about it. It was such an incredible experience. Um, I mean, I don't. I don't know how you guys feel about Yosemite, but I walked into this project feeling like. Oh, shit, the valley in July. Oh, God, you know, like I had that like mentality about it. And, you know, like, I I found there's so much there. It's like the most densely packed, full of amazing stuff place on I've ever been to. It's absolutely incredible there.
0: It's funny, since you asked us how we feel about Yosemite, I feel very different about Yosemite than I do about the valley in July. Yeah, right? <laughs> I only really go to the valley in winter, I, you know, I was there in January for photography and got, you know, it's right after a storm. It's one of the most magical places ever. I love the valley in winter. Fewer people, you know, it's not. I, I like the cold. So, you know, again, you're limited into where you can go. You're pretty much limited to the valley. Um, you know, and you can do winter stuff other places, obviously, you know, Badger Pass and things like that. But, um, but the park itself is it's funny because everyone views it as this crazy, crowded, nutty place, and, and that's such a small part of what Yosemite is, right? I mean, north of 120 is like empty. I mean, you could yeah. hike, I've, I've hiked there and seen two people in a day in places up there. I mean, it's and it's beautiful wilderness up there. So, if you're willing to do the legwork and get a couple days. Uh, up there, and you know, away from away from you know the road and the highway or the the trailhead, it's a pretty spectacular place. And in the south there's places in the park that not many people go. There and on the east, some, yeah, there's some really um you know untraveled
1: you know corners of the park. When when I did the uh, the Theodore Solomon's Trail, we came, we came in. It starts at Glacier Point, and it exits the park at Fernandez Pass. And so we went to the Wawona Ranger Station. We're picking up our permit. And uh, they're you're know, like, "Okay, so where are you exiting?" and we're oh, we're going out over Fernandez Pass, and the
2: ranger says,
3: "Where's that? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah yeah
2: so i i had I had an experience like that too, where i was I was trying to hike up Smith Peak, which is up above Hetch Hetchy. It turns out you can't it's like really difficult to get to to Smith Peak anymore because the rim fires pretty much destroyed the trails, but I I got there and like I was talking to the ranger and I'm like so what do you know about this trail and he's like nothing tell me how it is I'd like to hear about it (laughs) so yeah there's there's like quite a bit of Yosemite that almost nobody goes to and like even like I'm not going to share it widely but I figured out systems on how to just go to the valley have a great experience even in the summertime even like you know like it, it requires a bit of backpacking and a bit of planning but there's ways to do it and I put a lot of that in the book, but you know, again, I don't want to get too carried away.
0: My simple tip. Cause I actually, I'm sure you guys do as well. I get asked all the time for people going to Yosemite. I got asked last week like, Oh, Hey, we're going to Yosemite. What should, what should we do? And the one thing I tell people, I'm like, here's the main thing you do when you get to the park, find your parking spot and do not get back into your car until you leave the spot. You know, this year might be a little different cause I don't know what's going on with the buses and the shuttle system, but they have an excellent bus and shuttle system and it just it makes your visit so much better to not have to fight for, parking everywhere you go so you can take the buses or even better walk you know if you bring your bicycle ride your bicycle around the valley i think just trying to be in your car as little as possible if you go in the summer months is a great way to visit the park
2: quick quick story about that um i i was doing a trip in june and i was doing a lot of backpacking i did Pahono trail i did a bunch of stuff up on glacier point and um with the backpacking permit you can stay at the backpackers camp and currently they don't they're not running the backpackers camp they're actually keeping upper pines at 50%. And so I got there and the backpackers camp was in upper pines. And I had the once in a lifetime experience of rolling into the park, walking into upper pines, sitting there in the midst of a massive thunderstorm. And then after the thunderstorm, I walked around Cook's Meadow and up to the lower, fall, lower Yosemite Falls. Nobody, nobody, summer solstice no one it was absolutely Crazy. amazing yeah it was like the the one positive covid experience i can <laughs> recount but but you know to that point like people who go to yosemite if you're willing to get up early like like early early like this hurts it's early you're gonna have no problem getting a parking spot and having a full day it's it's just it is it is nice that so many people hate, hate getting up early so the people who don't have a problem with it can actually get the spots
0: and we should add now i do believe they have right now they have like a quota system right where they're only letting uh, i don't know how long that's in effect or if it's still in effect even but i know early on they had a reservation system and they were only letting certain number of people in so if you're planning on going after listening to this make sure you have a reservation so you don't get turned around at the uh, at the entrance gate yeah for
2: sure it's a 50 percent quota system it's available through uh, recreation.gov um, you know, summer, summer weekends are probably all pretty locked up. And I know the park's really smoky from all the fires in NorCal, but, um, yeah, if you, if you get the permit, I think it's good for like seven days of going in and out. So it's, it's, it's not too, it's not too bad. I mean, like I've found a lot of people been able to get that permit.
0: Yeah. I have, I have some friends who were, who were there today i think up there now so and they're posting i'm seeing their their instagram posts and it looks like they're having a good time doesn't look too smoky so
2: <laughs> yeah yeah i hope it stays that way
0: yeah
1: so where if people want to know more about uh scott turner and uh follow your adventures where can they connect with you online
2: yeah so i'm i i am on a i had been on a temporary hiatus from instagram but like i'm going to go back on it again um it's at scott turner hikes that's my handle, um, S-C-O-T-T-T-U-R-N-E-R. Um, and then uh, scottturnerhikes.net is my website. And I haven't been writing a whole lot recently. Um, again, taking I've been trying to take a social media hiatus. It's not the funnest time to be on social media right now, but um, I'm going to be putting more and more stuff out there as time goes on. Awesome.
1: So we'll have those links in the show notes and anyone can kind of check out when your surprise book comes out in the future we'll know about that For sure. and we'll have links to all of your books in there as well so uh you know if, if somebody's looking to either expand their existing guidebook collection or start one they can pick one of your books and get going
2: yeah that i'm i'm, I'm proud of them i think people will enjoy them if they pick one up absolutely
0: yeah well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on social media, on Instagram at almostthere_ap or Almost There Adventure Podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at The SoCal Hiker, or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and provided courtesy of Yemoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, AlmostThereAdventurePodcast.com. Can you imagine climbing 100 peaks in a year? Well, on our next episode in two weeks, we talk to a couple people who have. As always, thanks for listening.